episode number seven. We're starting recording. Hi everyone, I'm Lahiru and I'm Stan and welcome to Anesthesia Coffee Break. Thanks to everyone for their kind words of encouragement. We could definitely be in a learning curve creating this material in this format, but definitely fun and challenging. And today we're going to go through the first part theory. So we're going to get started, specifically the control of breathing. So we'll probably start with respiratory physiology because that's you know that big core topic. Uh, but first, Stan, do you have a weekly performance tip? And uh, is there one technique, for example, that's helped you with this exam? Well, this technique is quite a practical one. And <laughs> what I did was I tried out a lot of pens before I set the exam. And one of the pens that I tried was the Uniball Jetstream. <laughs> and that's yep. probably one of the most important things that I think is essential for this exam. Because you're writing so much in this exam, you want a pen that has low resistance, that doesn't smudge. And the Uniball Jetstream, I highly recommend it. Yeah. So, and, you're, and you're not getting sponsored for this, are you? No, no, no look, no if Uniball placement. hears this and they want to sponsor me, fantastic. I, I would I would love <laughs> to get their pens shipped off to me. So. I would agree with you. I went through so many different pens. My writing's atrocious. Everyone knows this. And I almost went to handwriting school for this exam. I went through so many different pens. And there's one particular pen that I use. I can't even remember the name of. But one of the, one of the good ones was the Pilot High Tech Point V5 Extra Fine. I remember that name because it was, this was such an important deal for me. Now, now this, sounds like a, this sounds like an ad. This yeah. really sounds like I, I swear <laughs> this is not an ad. <laughs> it's just really important that you write neatly in this exam. I actually really love this tip. <laughs> I don't know, as doctors, I think we get trained to write poorly in lecture theatres, trying to write down all the notes on ward rounds, trying to write quickly, and it suffers for sure. Absolutely. And what I find is that as I get older, my spelling gets really bad, especially spelling surgeons' uh, surnames <laughs> and other people's surnames. Like what I do to hide that it actually is through my really bad handwriting. So oh, that's you, a little secret that do, do you trail uh, I'm off? admitting. Yeah, I do trail <laughs> off, yes. I've seen people do that with my name, A-M-A-R. Correct, correct. Yeah. And I would do the same. I would go A-M-A-R and T and then I will just scribble the rest of the bit. That's so rude. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to have a name like mine, T-A-Y. I really wish I had. Simple, straightforward. Uh, All right, let's get to the short answer question. Okay. So the short answer question is, list the physiological factors which increase respiratory rate and include a brief explanation of the mechanisms by which each achieves this increase. Uh, 62% of candidates pass this question. So, La, tell me, how would you approach this? So, first of all, you can easily check out the 2006 February exam paper. It's question 10. Uh, so, go to, the, go to the ANSCA website and you'll be able to find that. And the first thing is the outline. The outline is so important, and I'd use some kind of quick summary statement about the sensor, central control, and effector system. So I'm just imagining three boxes with the arrows leading, because essentially your sensors will sense the CO2 or the oxygen or whatever other chemical. Then it will go to the brain, in this case the medulla and the pons, and then that will then affect your respiratory muscle. So that's my baseline overall structure that I want the examiners to know that I know how this system goes. And then really just get into the most important physiological factors. And you'll find that there's there's so many different factors, right? So there's, you know, hypercapnia, hypoxemia, acidosis, exercise, basal metabolic rate, hypotension, et cetera, et cetera. But know that no one knows the detail for all of them. So I think having a prioritized answer is really important. So most of the time you're just going to talk about hypercapnia, hypoxemia, and a little bit about acidosis, and then a line about the others. Is, Is that what you think? 
So the interesting question, interesting part of this question is that it does say list, and and I agree with you in terms of mm-hmm. that you need an overarching statement with the sensor, central controller, and effector system, mm-hmm. and the idea that because there's so much factors involved with the control of respiration, mm-hmm. it's actually quite a broad topic. But you're absolutely right in terms of the key points to pass this question would be dis- to discuss the ones that you've talked about in terms of hypercapnia, hypoxemia, acidosis, and then also be able to also cover the other parts yep. that you also listed as well. Um, and you want to be able to cover it in sufficient detail. So that's quite a skill. So I think what's your approach in making this a practical way to sort of answer this question? Yeah, so I thought you know, anyone can go through the textbook answer, but I thought in this session we could go through what makes it interesting. Because I feel like you know anyone can read a textbook, anyone can memorize and regurgitate, but I thought let's go through what makes it interesting. So first of all, CO2. So imagine first page I just write hypercapnia or elevated CO2 is a potent response to respiration. Well, it acts centrally and peripherally, What's really interesting is centrally, it's not the CO2 itself, but the CO2 diffuses across the blood-brain barrier and then creates H+, because it's a, you know acid, and this stimulates then the medulla. And I found this really, really cool because the CSF just has less protein, and so it has less ability to buffer any pH change. So any amount of CO2 will have this you know, amazing impact on respiration where... Uh, you know, if the CO2 was in the blood, it just wouldn't have the same effect. The H plus wouldn't rise, the pH wouldn't decrease. But then, you know, over time, ventilation normalizes eventually because bicarbonate does eventually shift and exerts a buffering effect. Peripherally, it seems to be all about these carotid bodies. And I don't know, I remember learning about carotid bodies and aortic bodies and where they are, you know, at the common carotid arteries and above and below the aortic arch for the aortic bodies. But again, what was really interesting is that it's such a massive deal they have a massively rapid response versus the central chemoreceptors. And that's because these little bodies, these carotid bodies and aortic bodies, they have a massive blood flow, 2,000 mils per 100 grams per minute. Now compare this to cerebral blood flow, which is you know relatively large compared to every other organ. Like you need a lot of blood to go to the brain, but that's only 55 mils per 100 grams per minute. So 2,000 mils versus 55 for the brain. So that means that any little rise, even a one millimeter rise, in the PaCO2 can very rapidly increase ventilation due to these peripheral chemoreceptors. Mm. Reaction you get from the peripheral chemoreceptors is the immediate response. And then what happens is that the, the central response is comes up a bit later. Mm-hmm. And certainly it's the CO2 that crosses the, you know, that's a lot more lipid soluble, it's able to cross the blood brain barrier. The central chemoreceptors, they, they account for 80% of the change mm-hmm. um, in respiratory acidosis. Yeah. But the thing is, it's, it's, a, it's a delayed change. It's yes. actually the peripheral chemoreceptors that, that come on first. And so this then goes to, I guess, a practical scenario. I mean, time and time again, you'll be doing anesthesia, spont vent anesthetics with an LMA or a laryngeal mask airway. And one of those biggest things is that you don't want to be that anesthetist who has a patient still being ventilated on an LMA at the end of the case when you want them spont venting. So one of those big things is to make sure that you let the CO2 climb because that will stimulate respiration. I mean, what do you, what do you do for your anesthetic? So one of the key things that I do, and I tell all trainees this, <laughs> is that I actually get my patients to spot vent straight away with a LMA. And mm-hmm. I, I use this uh, knowledge of physiology to account for this. So what I do is after I put in the, after I induce them with Propofol. Actually, let's give context. Let's say you're doing, you know, 70 kilo 
30-year-old male for inguinal hernia repair, so a standard LMA, non-relaxant anesthetic, what would you do? Uh, look, I must admit, with, with an inguinal hernia, yep. the, the surgeon may request relaxations. Oh, really? Sometimes. In, really? Public, in public, they might. No yeah. way. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Which surgeon are you working with? <laughs> look, let's not, let's not name any names here, okay? <laughs> but let's, let, look, let's say that we'll do, a, we'll do an LMA case for a... Let's say a RF, RF radius. RF radius, perfect. RF radius. That way, that way you, you, definitely don't need, you definitely don't need muscle relaxation. What I do is I actually try to minimize the amount of opioids I give initially. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because of the opioid effect on the CO2 mm-hmm. ventilation curve. Mm-hmm. The second thing I do is I always maintain 100% oxygen. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I induce them with propofol, I actually co-induce them mm-hmm. with both propofol and um, inhalational volatiles, specifically sevoflurane. I think the listeners would actually love to know exactly the doses you'd use for a well 30-year-old 70K for this RF. What do you reckon? So my standard induction dose would be 200 milligrams of propofol. Yep. And to have them breathe on sevo, about running at 8% at around 8 liters of flow Oh, wow. Of oxygen. That's a, that's a big amount. So you're obviously Correct. watching out for hypertension and bradycardias and things, and you wouldn't do this in the elderly sick patient. No. no. So in the elderly sick patient, I still do a co-induction. And, and this is with a caveat that you're, you're doing it in someone who is low risk of PONV, who you don't really mind the presence of volatile anesthetic. And a lot of my anesthetics, I do use a combination of both volatiles and, mm. and um, propofol as well. So I do do what's called um, yep. MEVA which is mostly intravenous <laughs> anesthetic. I actually like that induction technique. I mean, that's not my induction technique. And I think you're probably, I haven't seen any other consultants practice. So that's probably a peculiarity about your technique. Yeah. But it, when you get very used to whatever system you use, it's incredibly efficient and yeah. very safe. And, and the reason I do that is because if you only induce with propofol, what I find is that in a fit, healthy 70, 80 kilogram male, mm-hmm. 200 milligrams of propofol is not enough. No, definitely not. Yeah. You agree, yeah? I agree, absolutely. Yeah. And you have to often give maybe some opioids or maybe even give a high dose of propofol <laughs> to make sure they're adequately relaxed. Or the other thing that, uh, that I see often happen is that after they induce, they'll often have to bag the patient mm-hmm. for a while with mm-hmm. inhalational anesthetics mm-hmm. um, for, for, that to, for, them, for the patient to be actually deep enough. So with this technique, what I do is give them a little bit of, little bit of propofol at the start, have them breathe on the sevoflurane, mm-hmm. And then after a period of, let's say, about 30 seconds, then I, I give them the rest of the 150 milligrams of propofol. And the reason why I give the mm. 50 milligrams of propofol is that some patients do find that eight, breathing 8% CEVO is, is a little bit hard. So with that, with that little bit of propofol on board, they do find that it's a little bit more tolerable. I've, I really like this discussion. In fact, you know, obviously we're talking, we're talking about respiratory physiology, but being able to relate it to practical stuff and make this podcast about actual practical things, I think will be far more interesting for our listeners as well. That said, you know, the obvious disclaimer, this, you know, any induction can be hazardous, so please do this in consultation with, with your consultant and consider each patient individually. Mm. Uh, yeah, I guess my induction, I think it's very sim- similar in the sense that I would give a big dose, even 300 milligrams of Profol, and some fentanyl, but I'll just, ha- depending on the operation, I just have the patient on the bag, not even ventilating them until they start breathing. Correct. Uh, but I'm always watching out for any kind of response from the patient where I might need to deepen them. And what I want to happen is I want that CO2 to rise. So we know that CO2 rises about three to four millimeters of mercury per minute. Mm-hmm. And 
depending on how much the patient has breathed previously. So some patients, when you ask them to pre-oxygenate, you might get them to hyperventilate and they might, they might actually get their CO2 down to quite low. So with an anesthetic, often you, you know, they need a CO2 of around, um, I would say around 50 to 60 millimeters of mercury before they start spawn venting. And then once they start spawn venting, that's when I start titrating my opioids, mm-hmm. aiming for arrest rates around 10. That really leads on to the next thing that I often see in the situation, which is the CO2 has climbed maybe 60, even 70, occasionally 80 millimeters mercury. Is that a problem in any patient? So in fit, healthy patients, I would say no. Agreed. It's going to be a problem in sick patients, in patients who have neurovascular compromise in terms of where you want to control their cerebral blood flow. And that's when you start thinking about the deleterious effects of CO2 I always say other systems. essentially CO2 will have very little effect, very minimal effect on a healthy patient. I'm worried about patients with existing acid-based problems, any kind of neurotrauma or tight brain where I'm worried about ICP and anyone with any cardiac dysfunction. So I think as CO2 climbs up to about 90 millimeters mercury, it has a secondary positive inotropic effect due to indirect sympathetic stimulation, but it does have direct negative inotropy. But after about 90 millimeters mercury of elevated CO2, then it becomes a negative inotrope. That said, most patients, it will not matter. And it's a very forgiving rise in CO2. Agree. As, lo- as long as your oxygenation is safe. Exactly. Yeah. So as a quick summary, CO2 rising potent stimulus to breathing and the central and peripheral chemoreceptors, peripheral ones are the aortic and carotid bodies, the very fast response. Um, but 80% of the response, which is slightly slower, is due to the CO2 diffusing across the blood-brain barrier, H plus increase causes pH decrease, and that will then act on the medulla to increase breathing. All right. Now, how about oxygen? Yes, oxygen. Again, this will be the next most important in my order of priority, but it's only from peripheral chemoreceptors and essentially increased activity as the PaO2 falls. I thought it was really interesting. It's the PaO2, so the arterial pressure of oxygen and not the oxygen content, so you're not going to stimulate breathing simply due to anemia or methemoglobinemia. Now, when we draw the graph of this, it's like a reverse sinusoidal graph. So even though some nerve activity starts at even 500 millimeters mercury, there's very little response until the PaO2 is less than 100 and it then becomes nonlinear. You get this sharp rise at about 50 millimeters mercury of oxygen, which is obviously a pretty dire amount of oxygen. It's a very fast response, but less important than the central CO2 response. And obviously this is like a, you know, this is like the uh, body's backup mechanism. If you've got chronic lung disease or you're at altitude, you may actually have very low PO2s. And this is then your stimulus to breathe when CO2 isn't quite acting in the way it needs to. Mm. And with the presence of CO2, we also know that it also affects the, uh, this curve as well. So in in the presence of CO2, you'd see the curve shift off to the right. Mm. And in the presence of anesthetics or volatiles, you actually see the curve shift off to the left. That's right. So that's a really good thing to mention. Every time you know you can give an answer that's just a straight answer, just think of how anesthesia or something else will cause an integration response or a change in response. So yeah, the CO2 curve just gets steeper in low oxygen and the O2 curve gets causes more minute ventilation in a high CO2 environment. And then anesthesia just dampens everything, obviously. Fascinating enough. <laughs> they actually quote very low values. So Nunn's quotes values of 0.1 mac already causes 50 to 70% depression it's of the um, CO2 curve. And then 1.1 mac 
would produce 100% depression of the curve. Yeah, wow. And then with, with propofol, it's a lot more variable with propofol. So propofol, there's a, there's, a, there's, a wide, there's a wide range. And this is one of the reasons why I, should, I actually like using volatiles. And I know that, I know that volatiles with its <laughs> impact on the environment is slightly coming, going out of fashion. But I do use CVO. I, I, look, I try to avoid using DES. In fact, I hardly use DES mm. uh, at all. And the reason why I do like using SIVO is that mm. there is a predictability to it that sometimes propofol just doesn't give. Like I've seen patients where Absolutely. I've run them hard on propofol yes. and they're still moving. Yeah. Even in one case, eye-opening, wow. running, running at a CET of six. I, and that, that was running, if I, if I remember correctly, almost running at about 100 mils an hour. This patient was yeah. still eye-opening, you find that in children as well. You have to run incredible doses high. of propofol, but you definitely have to run high opioids just to keep the patient still. I, yes. I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm a big fan of volatiles in terms of they're tried and tested. And definitely in our environment, I feel like there's a fashion or a fad towards running TIVA or just total intravenous anesthesia for a lot of patients. But I think we will see, we'll see these occasional problems. And we'll definitely go through this in the pharmacology lectures that volatile itself has a slight muscle paralytic effect mm. that you just don't get with propofol. Yes. But practically speaking, you know, if you're running propofol every case and the arms are tucked in and your drip just happens to tissue even one in a thousand times, that's a problem every couple of years that you don't want to have. Big problem. Yeah. <laughs> now, there's a lot of other factors that control respiration. Mm. And do you want to quickly mention them? Yeah, absolutely. So there's probably less need to go into detail about the other factors. You know, pH is also important, whether it's respiratory or metabolic, as we mentioned. But then there's exercise, irritant receptors in the lungs, hypertension can increase respiratory rate, pregnancy, voluntary control of respiration. So you're actually trying to increase your respiratory drive. And then all the effects of anesthesia and depressive drugs like benzodiazepines and opioids. But it really, I just mentioned that and a brief description for each is warranted, but probably not that much information even exists in the prescribed text. And also the proof is that a lot of consultants probably never learnt this and they still pass their exams. So I think it's really important to know the CO2 and oxygen and I guess the pH and the integrated effects and just be able to mention briefly all the other effects, which again, doesn't take too much memory space. Just to summarise, the way that you would construct your answer is that your introductory statement would have a overarching statement about the sensor, central controller and the effector system. Mm -hmm. And I think that diagram is available in West. Yep. And I will um, put a link to that as well. And then after that, you will talk about the effect on the effect of CO2 mm -hmm. and, then, and then the effect of O2 mm -hmm. and then listing the others as well. Yep. And would then, that be correct? Exactly. And also mentioning the integrated effects anytime you relate it back to practical scenarios, situations and anesthesia itself, always, always a good option. Yep. So that's all for this episode of Control of Breathing from Anesthesia Coffee Break. Any questions, please email us at lahiruandstan at gmail.com. And please, as always, give us any comments, give us any suggestions, and please share. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>